Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History, coming to you again from London. Something a little bit different today, I'm joined by Channel 9's European correspondent, Amelia Adams, and we're going to talk about all things to do with history, news, current events. Amelia, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on. Certainly no shortage of uh, topics to cover <laughs> in London at this time, is there? We'll probably run out of tape before we get to the uh, the end of all of them, but um, I should say we actually met on the battlefields uh, last year, um, We and then since then we've done both the Western Front and Gallipoli together. Let's start with that. What was it like for you to walk, you know, when we talk history, there's nothing more historic than mm. Gallipoli or Pozier or these famous battlefields. What was it like to walk that ground? It was incredible for me because firstly, personally, I do have a really intense um, personal interest in and I guess respect for war history. My dad instilled that in me very young. We actually lived in Europe when we were, I was 11, I think, 11, 12, and we did all the battlefields. He was just he was just obsessed. I'd be surprised if he hasn't been on one of your tours in the past. Um, and so I really I got over here at a very um, lucky time because, of course, it was the centenary year. So 2018, um, I was started in July and then it was straight into, I think it was August, the Battle of Amiens, and then um, from there, of course, the centenary in, in November – so to go back as an adult and obviously not just to be taking it in but to be reporting on it and covering it um, was a completely different experience. And something I'm always very conscious of is that, you know, every year we do the same commemorations and the same services and we, we cover them and that's incredibly important. And we have obviously – I mean, I work for a commercial network – so. We have a lot of viewers who are veterans and who are very invested and who are very involved, but we have a lot of people who aren't and who don't go to those things. And I always think the key is how do you engage those people? Because every every battle story has been told, um, every you know commemoration has been covered, every war cliche has been spoken in a script. So it's a matter of, I guess, um, finding a different story or the, the human story and... Um, there are a couple of really um, emotional stories actually down down in the battle, battlefields that sort of it just make it just is a reminder that there's always I guess a new take or and also that, that this this far on people are still so so affected and those memories are still very emotional for people um, and then in Gallipoli as I discovered through you 
there are still things that haven't been uncovered because one of the most incredible things I did was walk the, that new trench system or oh, that newly revealed it? trench system. And I'm thinking, you know, 104 years on and the the landscape has just revealed, is it Silt, Saltzburg? Saltzburg, yeah. Saltzburg. For, for those who don't know, the um, Turkish authorities are in the process of what I think is a wonderful program to clear scrub away from key sites at Gallipoli. And even since we were, were there, Amelia, it's that they've done more great work. And mm-hmm. so now some of the key Australian sites like Shrapnel Valley and The Neck and all these famous places that we know so much about, you've always been able to visit them, but they've always been quite obscured by a century's worth of, of undergrowth. Um, they're clearing those away bit by bit. So now when, when we go, like you and I did at Silt Spur, you can now walk in the Australian trenches. It's, it's absolutely extraordinary. And to show people at home that ha- haven't been to Gallipoli and perhaps might never get there, that there are still things that are untold um, and that are sort of revealing themselves. I've always wanted to go to Gallipoli. That was on my bucket list. Um, but I didn't realise until I got there two things. One was that, again, you know, Every year we cover Gallipoli in the news and it's so important and they have these incredible service, but the numbers have been dropping. Last This year, 2019, um, it ended up as the lead story because there was a terror alert and, you know, it sort of gave it new relevance and new significance. And um, and the other part of it was walking what felt like a new, a new discovery up there in those trenches and hopefully showing people at home that... Um, there's always still remarkable things to be seen. Did you feel that weight of history at Gallipoli? Because I always do Mm. when I go there. I love the Western Front as well and there's Mm. places there that are extraordinary. But there is something about standing on that beach at Gallipoli or climbing those heights. Did you feel that weight of history when you were there? Absolutely. Yeah, it was was actually quite overwhelming. The first morning we got there and I'm filming some preview stories for, for Nine News, we were there for sunrise to get some of those beautiful shots and I just, I was really taken by that sense early on um, of of just standing on, on that beach and I suppose looking up and it seemed to me a lot smaller in real life as well because I've seen so many war documentaries and movies and, you know, have studied Gallipoli but to stand there in real life it's and, – and, and when you, you walked me up to that ridge and you can see across the whole sort of terrain and think this was it. Like, what chance did they have? Yeah, it's, it's one of the wonderful things about Gallipoli. Yeah. The wonderful and terrible things about Gallipoli mm. is when you climb up where we did and you look out over the entire battlefield, mm. you can see why it was such a massive failure and why so many people were killed. And that's the reason we should go. That's the reason we should walk this ground. Yeah. You can't get that perspective from reading a book or watching a documentary or listening to a podcast. Absolutely. You've got to go and walk the ground. You mentioned the people that you met and I've been with you and people recognise you and come up to you for a chat all the time. And you're always very gracious to, to, to talk to people and answer their questions. But I think there's something special about being on the battlefields because I get it as well. I, mm. I speak to a lot of people when I'm over there. How did you find speaking to not just a few Australians but dozens and hundreds of Australians who'd flown all the way from Australia to come and walk that ground? What, what, how did that make you feel seeing that so many Australians still want to be over there and walk the ground? Oh, I was incredibly – I mean I, was, I felt very, um, very proud, you know, very patriotic actually being in Gallipoli – and um, it was a real cross-section of Australians, isn't it? Which I suppose shouldn't surprise me, but I loved seeing all the young Aussies getting off the bus and, they, you know, all their tour T-shirts and setting up. And some of them have obviously had a couple of drinks, setting up their, you know, their, their blankets in prime position there. I love seeing that, that generation being so interested and having made, a lot of them have worked it into a trip of Europe and that that is still, you know, a key 
um, destination, I think, is really, really... And they get it. They get a bad rap to young people. I think, yeah. you know, older Australians are keen to say, oh, bloody young people, they don't <laughs> respect it. I've, I've been to Gallipoli a lot. I've seen a, thousands of young people there. I have never seen a single incident that I didn't think was appropriate and respectful. There's minor yeah. things that go on because they're probably not used to walking a battlefield, thank God, because yeah. they're not involved in wars <laughs> and battlefields, which is great. Um, but I've never seen anything that I um, thought was disrespectful. And in fact, I've seen young people doing some remarkably respectful things on battlefields. Yeah, and I think that the people I spoke to all found it very harrowing. You know, they really did take in the experience and get that sense of, my goodness, these guys were our age when they were kind of sent to the slaughter here. And um, it could have been us and how lucky we are 104 years on um, and how much we just need to take that time every year to focus on that and remember that and have a think about some of those lessons. Very different world we're living in now, obviously. Um, and then the older Australians, which I love as well, who um, you know, really taking their time and especially in France you see they're taking their time on their tours and enjoying the whole experience. They love meeting the local French villages. They love having the French food and making the connection with um, all those towns where the Australians were so revered and, and still are um, and having their moments on the battlefield as well, which is so important. Um, we're, very, we're very lucky that the historic coincidence that the Australians fought in northern France occurred because mm. I've just come back from a tour there and it does mean you can see some incredible history. Yeah. But at the end of the day, as you and I did, you can enjoy some lovely cheeses and wines and relax <laughs> in some beautiful areas. So it, yeah. is a, it is a lovely part of the world uh, to get over there and, and it's, it's respectful, pay our respects to people in these beautiful corners of the world. Um, European correspondent for Channel 9. Yeah. Pretty good gig. Yeah, it's it's incredible actually. And it sort of came out of the blue. Um, I had not been on the road reporting because I'd been returning from maternity leave for my second child. So I've been presenting in the studio but always always missing that, you know, being on the road reporting and especially the big stories um, when the job popped up. So grabbed the opportunity and, and moved over here with my husband and, and two kids and it has been an absolute whirlwind. I'm as I'm talking to you and I was thinking back to the Battle of Amiens commemoration in November, there are things I actually can't remember because it's such a blur. Um, my youngest was six, 14, 16 months when we moved here. So really still, you know, still a baby. Um, moved here. My oldest started school. He was four and I took off. I went to NATO um, following Donald Trump, which was an incredible experience. And actually, I've since I've done three Trump kind of tours since I've been here, which has um, been really fascinating. You arrived at a time when, you know, I mean, yeah. you, you could have done this job in other eras and yeah. had nothing to report on except the Chelsea Flower Show. Well, <laughs> but you've been here at a time when there is so much going. Is that is that do you do you get your teeth into that and go isn't this fantastic or do you wake absolutely. up some mornings and go I, I wouldn't mind just a little bit of a break? No, absolutely because actually the 18 months before I started was all about terror. There was so many terror attacks right across Europe. Um, and I came here thinking, oh, I'm going to be going from one bomb blast to the other. But, um, you know, the intelligence and what's happened over in Syria has kind of shut all that down, thankfully. So I actually haven't covered a terror attack, but, of course, I walked into this incredible political situation. And my first, well, my first um, British political story, you could say, was actually Boris Johnson resigning from Theresa May's cabinet um, in July after Donald Trump had been here and she'd put her checkers, so-called checkers deal together and he said, um, Boris Johnson said, I can't, can't work with this woman and can't support this. And 
you know, a year later he was prime minister. So that's been a fascinating, fascinating story to follow um, and completely unpredictable because we kept saying, whatever happens, Brexit is March 29, 2019, <laughs> you know, and it was the countdown and whatever happens. And then, of course, it was delayed and delayed again. And now we're in absolutely uncharted territory to the point where I think a lot of people are questioning, you know, if the UK Parliament can do its job, can actually function because it's completely paralysed actually. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It is extraordinary and also kind of goes to show that perhaps it's not so much the Prime Minister or it's not that person, it's not the leader now, is it? Because Theresa May had three cracks at getting a deal through and um, ultimately Brexit was her demise and Boris Johnson came in on this whole platform of positivity and a new energy and I'm going to make this happen, you know, do or die. And he is now in a very, very tenuous situation. The reason I was so keen to get you on the program to talk about these things is because it's it's an absolute cornerstone of everything I do that history does not belong on the dusty old shelves, Mm. that history is something that's an evolving creature. That's Mm. why my podcast is called Living History. Mm -hmm. History is something that belongs to us. And people... um, I'm not interested in politics very much, but I'm very interested in the whole Brexit thing, the whole Trump situation. Mm. People ask me why. And the reason is I think it's a rare time when we are living through history that we know people will be talking about. In 50 years, people will still be talking about this and why did they make the decisions they did and why could they not see X, Y and Z coming? And unfortunately, from this perspective, we don't know what X, Y and Z is. Mm. But I just find it a very exciting, in spite of all the problems, I find it a very exciting period to be able to be living through such historic times. It is. You're reporting on it every day yeah. for the news. Do you, do you have that feeling? Oh, absolutely. It's an incredible time to be a journalist, um, especially in Europe. And when I stand, as I do so many early mornings and late nights, um, in front of the Houses of Parliament, I do. I take a moment to look up at Westminster and just think, you know, anything could happen today. And I think when you're in a situation where whether you're here or in the US at the moment, you're turning on all the different networks and reading all the different papers and commentators and everyone is just saying, this is crazy. (laughs) Who knows what's going to happen? You've got people slamming the US president, slamming the prime minister here, um, you know, calling for people to be impeached and calling people to be resigned. Boris Johnson should go to jail. It's pretty incredible um, the things that are being, you know, called for about world leaders at the moment. And I guess that's because of their behaviour. Um, that's because of certainly here in Britain, the stalemate that the country feels. And, you know, when I arrived here, I, f- I got the sense from um, what you would call, I suppose, the pub test. And for me, perhaps it was more the school gate test. You know, what mums and dads and people in the streets, supermarket, whatever, are really sort of chatting about and what they're saying. And when I arrived here in the middle of 2018, I got the sense that people just wanted to get on with Brexit. A lot of people felt that those who had voted for it didn't fully understand it. They didn't know what they were voting for and therefore, you know, it was a bad idea but that was what was happening and let's sort of get a move on with it. Within six months, um, people didn't even want to talk about it, you know. People get angry if you, but they just don't want to talk about it. Everyone here is so over it and so furious that they haven't had any um, progress from, you know, their leaders, and which you can understand. And now it's at a point where 
let's just get this done and dusted. But actually, um, how? <laughs> it's funny. My, when I arrived at the airport, I got in a taxi and the first thing the taxi driver told me was a joke about Brexit. Mm. He said, what's OXO Stock Cube's latest flavour? The laughing stock. <laughs> and it's just, it, I mean, it's wonderful that the yeah. British sense of humour is still shining through. But I think you're right. I mean, I've made several trips to the UK since the whole yeah. Brexit thing kicked off. And I am starting to see the cracks are starting to show yeah. the strain on people. You know, I, I speak to my British friends and whatever side of the divide they are on, for or against, everyone is just yeah. starting to feel the tension. It's getting pretty dark. And I actually read a piece just, just this morning about Boris Johnson warning about riots, you know, like we've seen with the Gilets Jaunes and we saw in LA in the 90s that people were here in London and across the UK would take to the street. And um, that's pretty terrifying. And I think... People are scared about what could happen with no deal and that's always been the case because no one really knows what's going to happen with trade and immigration and all of those things and that some of the projections and some of the reports are really dire, you know. And the, the, the UK government is now running advertisements on mm-hmm. TV for businesses saying prepare for Brexit that's on it. October 31. Yeah. If I was running a business in the UK, I'd say I'd like to, but what the hell am I supposed to be doing? It's just well, that's right. it's remarkable. And I think, well... The latest being, and this this could change, you know, every five minutes, but certainly the latest from the EU leaders um, as of a few hours ago is that the only real options are uh, no deal on the 31st of October, and I think that's 34 days away now, so we're getting close, uh, or for Boris Johnson to ask for an extension, which I think he's now legally required to do, but he refuses to, so... Whatever plays out in the next 34 days, it's going to be really interesting. But um, potentially... Exciting times to be alive. <laughs> look, it's exciting. And it's exciting times to be a correspondent. And I love it. You know, I really... Um, I've sort of had to study the UK political system and Brexit for every day that I've been here so I can follow all of this. But it is, um, as you said, whether you're really, you know, interested in the ins and outs of Brexit and what it means for business or whatever, it's just a fascinating beast to watch how it evolves when you just break it down to this kingdom that wants to leave the EU, you know, after so many years and how that has turned out to be so difficult and almost impossible and what the consequences will be um, for people here, people in Ireland, Northern Ireland. I mean, it's just, it is fraught. These moments in history, good or bad, uh, your job as a journalist is to convey what's going on, to report on these historic moments. Some of the great moments in history we know about and we have a good understanding of because of the way they were re- reported by very talented journalists. Are you aware of that when you're reporting on these things? Are you are you are you conscious of the fact that something could happen and you could all of a sudden be the face of that story around the world? Is that something that you are aware of as a journalist or do you just get up every day and go and do your job? No, it's not something that I think about. You put it in my head now. <laughs> I'll be nervous next time. No pressure, time. yeah. Um, it's not, honestly. I don't think of it like that, although you're absolutely right and, and as I'm talking I'm thinking through a little show reel of you know there's key moments in history which you do associate with a certain journalist or reporter. Yeah, Walter, Walter Cronkite announcing that you know, Neil Armstrong and the moon people remember Walter Cronkite's reporting more yeah. than they do the footage of the moonwalk. Yeah those iconic moments that's right but I don't I absolutely don't think of it like that I do just um, get up and go to work and it's always so unexpected. Um, I was in Normandy um, for June the 6th this year. Oh, I'm so jealous. I wanted yeah. to be that when I missed it. But. It was incredible um, to mark 75 years since D-Day. And, uh, of course, Donald Trump was there, so followed him from his state visit in the UK. 
to that, which was, um, yeah, it was a remarkable deal. That's a beautiful, the American War Cemetery. They've just done such a stunning job with it. Um, and that was the end of, oh, I want to say seven days of probably 20 to 22-hour days, um, which is the reality when you're on the road covering a big story and trying to get ahead of the president and filing for a different time zone, so very early in the morning and then very late at night and then during the day we're following whoever we're following. Um, so there was a bit of a relief for me as I was doing my last live cross that night, which was probably 11 p.m. French time. Um, and then we realised that um, a certain Australian was doing really well in the French Open and had just gotten into the semi-final. <laughs> so I thought, oh, hang on a second, that could be something. <laughs> this could be a story. Oh, no, surely she won't win. This, no, this is not going to happen. So we got up the next morning and thought, you know what, we'll drive towards Calais and, you know, we're exhausted and we've totally run out of clothes and whatever else. Looking forward to getting home to the family. We'll drive towards Calais and see what happens. So we live streamed the, the semi-final with Ashley Barty um, at Roland Garros and sure enough, halfway through, we pulled over on the side of the, <laughs> the motorway and, uh, and watched the end of it and watched to see her win to make the final, the French Open, which was historic in itself. And we turned the car around and we drove straight to Paris. So those things are really unexpected. And, um, I mean, I would never, as my job as a reporter in Australia, get sent to cover a tennis, you know, the Australian Open, let alone the French Open, which is like the French Open. So there I was at Roland Garros. Um, and, of course, she won. And it was just a, an incredible story because of, yes, it was a, a sports story, but it was a, it was a news, it was a story about, this amazing 23-year-old and, and her life and her quitting, you know, the, the sport that she loved and going to cricket and giving that a go and her resilience and her journey ending up at Roland Garros and the way she played and also um, just her personality and, and also very much what it meant for Australian tennis because we really needed, you know, a great a great role model in that sport Um and so there I was in front of the Eiffel Tower <laughs> for three nights and, and one of the nights, I think it was about three o'clock in the morning local time, I ended up on um, our Sports Sunday program doing a seven-minute cross back to the sports um, program in Sydney, which is kind of hilarious because I would never be <laughs> asked for tennis analysis under any other circumstances. But this is one of the great things about being Europe correspondent. There's only two of us here. And so it doesn't matter what the story is, um, we get to do it. So I did that. I did the World Cup, um, Wimbledon as well. Um, so I've I've had a really good cross-section with that story. I started telling you that story just as an example of how you can be on one track, which is very much like Donald Trump and his state visit, which blew up was Theresa May's last week as well, and then Normandy, um, which was incredible. And then suddenly I'm writing a tennis report. You, you are doing Paris. a job that is, you know, many people would consider a dream job, best job in the world. Yeah. Do, do you have to pinch yourself? You know, a girl from suburban Sydney yeah. now, you know, made good on the world stage. Yeah, well, I Actually, do. why don't you tell us a little about that? Tell us about your journey to get from, you know, well, growing I, up in Australia to, to now here. I always wanted to be a journalist and I really, you know, I was one of those kids that I was allowed to stay up only late one night a week to watch 60 Minutes and that's my memory of... So you're always going to be on Channel 9. Well, it was my dream and I just, um, I used to uh, get a little tape recorder when I was when I was a kid, like I was seven or eight and I would 
you know, um, make cassettes of the Charlton family, it's our family name, evening news and reports about who'd done what that day, silly stuff like that. And writing, I was always really into writing and making up stories. Um, so I always wanted to do that. And then I think at university, um, I did very, I did a very practical degree. I was doing local radio, live local radio from my second year of uni and regional television. You which know, university? By the time I was 20. To? So Charles Sturt University in Bathurst, which oh. is an incredible communications degree. Yeah, their media degree is very well known. Yeah, and I mean you're 19 and 20 and you're on air for Prime Orange or win or um you know the local radio stations so that was really solid and then I was very lucky and I got into um internships in Sydney quite easily and um did some time regionally and I worked at Sky News as a producer which was great so but always um it's not easy television with the hours and I can remember when I was at Sky especially because I was a lineup producer so I was writing but also putting bulletins to air and I was 21 and I was living in a share house in Newtown with all my friends and we'd just finished uni and they were sort of, you know, it was just party central and, and there was I working, starting work at 2 or 3 a.m. doing 14-hour shifts. So it's hard yards but um, I actually went to Queensland as well and worked for Channel 10 News which was fantastic. Did some time on the Gold Coast Bureau, which again, there was just two reporters and two cameramen. So we covered that whole coastline, shark attacks and drug raids and stabbings and, you know, there's a lot that happens. Very, very Gold Coast. <laughs> yeah, very Gold Coast. You've summed it up well. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then back to Sydney to work for Channel 10 and then on to ultimately Channel 9. And I've actually just marked 10 years at Channel 9 this year, um, which has been great. And I've had a real variety of um, experience there, you know, different the Today Show and work on the 6pm news and hosting different daytime bulletins. and But, yeah, this is, as you said, this is definitely the dream job. And I I, I honestly thought that um, a bureau opportunity had been and gone for me because I um, had a family. You know, I had two little kids and I thought, well, I've chosen to do that um, rather than hold off and see if I could get a bureau. Um, but here I am. So... Hats off to Channel 9 and to my bosses for saying, you know, do you want to give this a crack with two very small children? Well, that's it's something you and I have discussed mm. you know, over glasses of red mm. wine at the end of long days. Many. Is that you are ve- <laughs> many, <laughs> many cheese and wine was how we uh, how we commemorated Anzac in France. But um, you are very well respected as a journalist, obviously. But also, I have seen a lot of media reporting, also that sort of mum of the year, <laughs> and you're held up as a sort of a you know, a, a, a poster woman for having it all, you know, the whole torturous expression, having it oh, all, which seems dreadful. to only apply to women and not yeah. to, never to men. I know. But I've seen all the articles and, you know, your husband Luke about what a great guy he is staying home with the kids so you can go off and pursue his career. I know. It's it's, it's wonderful that yes. people recognise it, but it must also get a bit tiresome. Look, first of all, can I just say no one would ever call me mum of the year, at <laughs> <laughs> least of all my children. Um, yeah, look, it was really interesting when I got the job because, as you say, there was a bit, fair bit of media generated and Daily Telly did a big thing and I did some radio. And that's all part of um, being given a great opportunity and the publicity that comes with that. And um, it was the first time, it is the first time that Channel 9 has sent a mum to be in, bureau, in, the, in the London Bureau. So um, it was a big deal and good on them. Like, absolutely, it's... It is progressive. Um, but, yes, I hear what you're saying. There is a bit of an irony, isn't it? There were definitely moments where 
look, I got asked things. First of all, I got asked, are you taking the children with you? (laughs) (laughs) For two years. Yeah, I thought I'd just leave them home. (laughs) Um, And I got asked things like, well, how will you do that with the kids? How are you going to do that job? Things that a man, a father would never be asked, um, which was really interesting, but also confronting in many ways. And my husband did get many accolades and and rightly so, because he gave up He's a very good job as director of a production company to come and support me and be stay-at-home dad. Um, but that's something that a lot of women do all the time, you know, when their, their husbands get promotions or postings overseas and they do it silently, um, whereas it was seen as quite a big deal, I think, because it was the first time. And hopefully, I guess what I can say about that is that um, it's great to be seen as a bit of a trailblazer in that sense, but hopefully that won't be a big deal going forward. And I know that's how my boss feels as well. Um, my network news director and my news director both, you know, have children and are very focused on the fact that um, having a family, you know, need no longer mean that we can't do these fantastic jobs and these crazy hours. And I couldn't do it, you know, and I have to be, I, have, I want to be real as well because I get women um, tweeting me, particularly women, tweeting me and sending me emails and a lot of feedback on Instagram saying, oh, how do you do it? As you mentioned earlier, you know, you've got it all and how do you manage this amazing job? And well, the reality is I have a husband who gave up an amazing job and we have a full-time nanny now when my husband is working, which we needed to do. We're living in London with two kids. Um, so I have a lot of support. And I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here for a lot, dinner, dinner, bath and bed most nights. I don't get to put my kids to bed. Um, I barely cook. So those are the things that, you know, I'm certainly not scurrying around cooking everyone dinner and telling everyone bedtime stories and then going out and doing five hours of live crosses on Brexit. You can't, you can't actually do that. You can only do one. As a professional woman in a demanding career how do you feel we're going there is obviously a strong focus on equality and 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 just breaking down some of these silly barriers you know i'm a fan of just you know ignoring gender yeah. you know just, let's just get on let's just start it. judging people as people yeah how do you think we're going in that um that that crusade to to make the world a better place it's an interesting one, isn't it? I'm of the mind that um we well i think there's, there's a lot of progress obviously and um and I'm just thinking of my own industry. Um, obviously, here I am for Channel Nine. My one of my Channel Seven counterparts um, is a mum. She's got Laurel's got a 14 and a 12 year old. So Channel Seven's now got a mum for the first time in the bureau. Um, the TVNZ reporter has got two small children as well. So you're starting to see a lot more, um, you know, women with kids in these roles, which previously people would have said. Oh, too hard, you know, couldn't do the hours, couldn't manage, you know, would need to be at home. So I think that's great progress. Um, I think that there is also a bit of a line where we go over the top with this stuff and people will criticise me for saying that. Um, but I tend to think sometimes we make too big a deal of oh, women doing this and women doing that. Like let's let's just get on with it. Let's get on with working hard and doing the jobs that we want and being awesome. I do have a real issue with the gender pay gap um, and that's still something that just irks me because it just shouldn't be. But there's a lot of um, just conversation, you know, is progress and leading to progress in that area and I hope that will continue. Um, It's not something I'm on a personal, you know, campaign to change or involved in but I'm certainly think it's something that's really important that we keep talking about um and I think 
the more women that we have in kind of management roles and in mentoring roles, the more that stuff trickles down. I mean, I often have younger producers and reporters coming to me asking, how should I ask for a pay rise? Or, or, you know, how should I approach my boss about this? And I think it's great if we've got women in, in roles where we're giving each other advice and guidance and help to have those conversations. And that's probably how we'll affect change, hopefully, ultimately. I hope you're right. Mm-hmm. What's, uh, what's in the future for Amelia Adams? How, how much longer are you going to be in Europe for? And, oh. and what do you want slash hope to do after that? Well, it's coming to an end. My posting will be up next year. So it's been an absolute whirlwind. But um, as we've said, I'll, I'll look back on it and think what an incredible time to have been here. And we've still got Donald Trump's coming back in December for NATO. So I've seen a lot of Donald Trump this year. Um, so that'll be that'll be very entertaining, no doubt. And then, of course, what happens in the next 34 days with Brexit. And look, there are definitely things that I'm looking forward to about heading back to Australia and that job lifestyle. Um, because being a correspondent, foreign correspondent is all-consuming um, and there's not a lot of time for anything else. I haven't really made any friends here <laughs> um, because it's work or, you know, family when I get a chance. So I'll be looking forward to being a bit of a more present parent, maybe do some canton duty or be some sort of, you know, useful mother at school with stuff that I've had to completely tap out of. Um, but when I think about that, I think, you know, what an experience and great to show my kids as well that, okay, well, while we're in London, I'm not particularly present in many areas of those of their life, but also it's, it's a role modeling thing, isn't it? Like I've got the job that I really worked hard for that I've always wanted. I'm working hard and we've been able to show them a bit of Europe while we're here. So hopefully they've taken it away a lot from the experience. Um, and Mainly I'm just looking forward to having a backyard again, to be honest, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) The things we take for granted. I lived in London as well and it's the small things you take for granted. a barbecue. And some fine weather. It's a very rainy day today as it's been all week. Indeed. um, It's just thank you so much for joining us and sharing these these thoughts about so many topics. I mean, when we sat down, we had no agenda. I had no no idea where we were going to wander off, but it's been... It's been really great. So it's it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And oh, I'm sure we'll chat to you again chat. in the future. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.